Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer as we begin this morning, or continue this morning? God, I join my prayer with the words that have been said already this morning. Those that we've sung together, those that we have whispered quietly. More than anything, we want to encounter you. So make yourself plain. We open our hearts and minds for the encounter. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here. And we, this morning, are going to talk about truth. Uh, we are in the middle. Well, no, we're now starting four weeks together. We just finished four weeks in the Psalms. So four weeks where we're going to talk about the crisis of blank and the promise of, of blank. So this morning is the crisis of meaning and the promise of truth. The others will be the crisis of loneliness and the promise of belonging, the crisis of difference and the promise of unity, and the last will be the crisis of death and the promise of new life. So that's where we're going to be. You might hear in these crises what it sort of feels like if you just kind of take a survey of the world as it stands right now. Months back, I was uh, talking to some folks as I was sitting in my office and praying, thinking, where do we need to go next? And this is the place where it seems like there's some, some grounding here. So this morning, we're going to talk about truth. But first, we're going to get into some really dark, deep, scary stuff together. You ready? It'll be fun. Trust me. This is the beginning of an article that I have read like four or five times. Uh, and it, this is the very first sentence. The end of reality is imminent, which will make you keep reading. If that's the first line in the article. So the article is about a thing I'm going to explain to you in a little bit. And I'm hopeful at least some of you have heard about it. Although if you have, you're going to be like just slightly depressed that you know about this. Uh, I love to hand you these sort of things on Sunday mornings. So, uh, do you know Google? You've heard of this, right? Yes? Do you know that when you type in the beginning of a phrase, it'll begin to auto-complete for you? Other things that have been searched for... Uh, Word to the wise, don't just type your name in because the autocompletes could be terrible and that would be awful. But I decided I was just going to type in truth is and see what came up. And the first one that came up is truth is not truth. And that made me feel like this is not a good thing. Right? Because what it means is that enough people have been talking about this idea of truth to Google, right? We all the time now, we don't tell each other as much of what we're thinking, but we will tell that little box what we're thinking. Often a deeper truth about what we're thinking, right? And so what does it mean that a whole 
multitude of people are struggling with the slipperiness, the fluidity of this idea of truth. Maybe you have felt that way. For the last five, seven, ten years, we've been hearing conversations about living in what they're calling like a post-truth age, whatever that means. This last couple of years, the language of politics has begun to infect everything. All speech is becoming constrained by the imagination of the beltway. It's a bad thing, right? And that land is just sort of spin. That's the way it goes. But what does it mean when that is all the discourse you hear everywhere around us all of the time? You just sort of begin to tune out or, or truth becomes right. It becomes really slippery. So do y'all know who this is? You know who you think it is. You, you, it's, a, it's either, yeah, it's supposed to be Harrison Ford from Indiana Jones, but it's not. It's Nicolas Cage. And half of you are thinking that movie would be better if it were Nicolas Cage <laughs> instead of Harrison Ford. Yeah. So that article, that first line that we showed you at the beginning here, uh, the end of reality is imminent. This has to do with that. Um, this is what's called a deep fake. Who knows what deep fakes are? Anybody? Just, is it just, it's just a few of us. Okay. So, and it doesn't make you feel great, does it? Jason or Brian? It doesn't make me feel great. I don't know. This is like the most benign version of a deep fake. The other stuff gets really dark really fast. Here's what a deep fake is. You remember the movie Face Off? Where they swap faces? And I thought, that's not going to ever happen. Well, because we live our lives in the digital world now, you can swap faces. So they've written basically learning programs, algorithms, artificial intelligence that can read and basically swap out faces and make them say other things. Technology's advanced to such an extent that you can realistically swap out Harrison Ford for Nicolas Cage in lots of movies. There's a whole bunch of movies where they've cut in Nicolas Cage instead of instead of other actors. Um, okay, so that's like the fun version of a deep fake. The more like ugh, is uh, well, it starts on the the really weird parts of the internet, like 4chan and Reddit. Don't go there. Don't go there. There's nothing good there. Uh, but where you would they would take the faces of female celebrities and they would superimpose them on adult films and then they would disperse them widely and you couldn't tell you can start to feel right how this is the more dangerous version of this maybe the most disturbing version of this is what if you could make like world leaders say things that they have never said and then send it out into the world and it looks it's it's almost impossible to tell that it's a forgery just take a moment And recognize how terrifying that reality would be. We rely heavily on what we see to tell us what the world is like. It's like that phrase, if you tell somebody something crazy happened and they say, send me a picture, I don't believe it. What happens when you can't trust your eyes? What's going to happen to our own shared understanding of reality if we no longer have the same image in our mind? We're not perceiving things the same. This is sort of taking what's been happening online and just exponentially increasing it out into the distance. And it will fragment us even worse. It will turn us into more polarized, less together 
kinds of people. So that's the technology. When we talk about truth, the first thing I begin to think about is this right here. Here's the end of the article. I'll read it for you. If you can't trust what you see, how can you form a worldview? Resistance, I'm afraid, is futile. Just make some popcorn and enjoy the ride to hell. Would y'all pray with me? No, I'm just joking. I'm not going to stop there. But that's sort of the way that that reality feels like in general right now. This is maybe honing on one part of it, but the idea that truth is becoming fluid or meaningless is, is quite potent right now. What's happened is we've made a shift from what I'm going to call the Shema to a sight kind of culture. So when the ancient people decided they were going to sort of agree on a reality for the world, it was understood by hearing. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The voice of the Lord is the most important thing. What has God said to us? Can you hear it? If you're an oral culture, before you're a written culture, the, the ear becomes sort of the sense of perception and understanding in the world. We have clearly moved from a Shema kind of world, a hearing kind of world, to a sight kind of world. Neil Postman would write about this in Amusing Ourselves to Death, about the advent of a TV culture, where sight, the images, flickering pixels, that becomes the dominant way that we receive information about the world and we perceive reality. That's how we get a shared set of facts. You understand what happened in the war in Vietnam because we all saw the pictures. And you have that one newscaster on the television who tells you what happened. It's where the phrase seeing is believing comes from. We have moved to a sight kind of world, but whenever sight itself isn't trustworthy, what's, what's the next thing? How are we going to understand reality? None of this is new. Propaganda is the way that power dictates the boundaries of reality saying things showing us things over and over and over and over again until the world you see is the world that they would like you to see now in like you know maybe a slightly benign form of this advertising is a kind of propaganda selling us an idea that unless we keep accumulating stuff we're not going to be happy And sooner or later, we buy into that rationale that you accumulate things to be happy and the propaganda all of a sudden just looks like conventional wisdom. There are other more pernicious forms of this, though. So, for instance, if you assume that there is one type of person who is less valuable or more dangerous than another, and if you say that enough and the only things you're allowed to say about it are that reality becomes the dominant reality. This happened in the South, people of color. It happened... In Germany, with Jewish people, it's happening right now with black and brown people in this country. There's a reason that it would be important for power centers to tell us and show us all of the crimes from one distinct people group and nothing else. It's propaganda and it shapes reality. Jacques Ellul is one of the folks that I have spent a lot of time with and just love. He wrote a book on propaganda called Propaganda. 
And this is what he says. He says, to be effective, propaganda must constantly short-circuit all thought and decision. It must operate on the individual at the level of the unconscious. He or she must not know that they're being shaped by outside forces, but some central core in him must be reached in order to release the mechanism of the unconscious, which will provide the appropriate and expected action. You won't even know it's happening. You will just begin to act. How many people this week watched or listened to like C-SPAN for the first time in a year or two? Because you wanted to hear what was happening in that courtroom as this woman, Ford, begins to tell her story and then you hear a counter story. I'm almost sure that however you received that information was likely some form of interpretation of what it all meant. Now, if we're going to talk about truth, We're going to talk about this. A year ago, nine, ten months ago at this time in this space, we talked about the women in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew's gospel as we ramped up to Advent and Christmas. And one of the things we said then, this is when all of the Me Too stuff was breaking into, uh, into our vision, was this feels like an apocalyptic kind of moment. Apocalypse is the language of unveiling. This week has been this struggle, this negotiation with reality and with truth, and it's felt a little bit apocalyptic. Now, this woman has sat in the middle of competing power structures that are for sure all using her, but she is here asking to be seen, to be heard, to be understood. For a minute, I just need to step out of the teaching proper and say um, if this week has been brutal for you because you share in this story maybe of abuse because you know somebody who does because you felt yourself silenced again or because you've had a trauma revisited on you and you weren't even asking for it uh, I'm really sorry I imagine that for years, this has not been a place, even church has not been a place where you could show up and ask to be seen and to be heard. But if we're going to talk about truth this morning, we're going to have to talk about being brave enough to see one another, to hear one another. The noise is so loud and everybody has an agenda. the language of politics, the only truth that matters is the will to power. It's the only one that matters. And that's not a new concept. When they drug Jesus in front of the power structures at the time, first the religious leaders and then Pilate, Jesus begins to talk when questioned and says, this says, I came to witness to the truth. And what does Pilate say? What is truth? This is Pilate's question to Jesus. It's the question we're going to ask this morning. If you have a Bible, just grab it. We're going to move around a good bit for the next couple of minutes.
What is truth? When Pilate asks it, Pilate's asking for an answer to the question. And maybe when you think about truth or you think about ultimate reality, it is, a, it is this kind of detached question. And it's sort of born out of being post-enlightenment kind of people where the way we understand the world is by distantly researching, hypothesizing, keeping it a little bit out here so that we can understand it. With facts, with data analysis, with surveys, with measurements. And then we can get to the answer like it's a math problem. So Pilate asks, what is truth? That's not the way that Jesus talks about truth. One writer says, it is a sad regret to have searched for the truth and settled for an answer. This morning isn't going to be about giving you an answer to that question, what is truth? We're going to take it a little bit deeper together. So here's the language for truth. I am the way or the path. I am the truth. And I am the life or the zoe. So here's what the word truth looks like if it's broken up. And I love this word because it tells us a little bit more about why truth, the search for truth, is not the search for an answer. It's for something else. So... uh, in the Greek, you've got over here the, the ah sound, the a, that is just a negation of the next term. So it's like a negative participle. And lanthano is the language of, of covering, to be hidden. So when the New Testament talks about truth, it's talking about a revelation kind of moment. It's the same language as apocalypse. Apocalypse is an unveiling. To show things as they really, really are. So when we, when we approach the world, and the only ways we are allowed to think about it are in terms of left and right, liberal or conservative, right? If it's only constrained by political speech, then we are still going to be sort of shadowed over. And what we're after is an apocalypse, is a deep understanding. That's the language of truth, the language of that which is revealed. And I'm just going to tell you right now where we're going together. And if you can remember one thing, remember this. Jesus is the apocalypse of God. The struggle... So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's answering a central tension or conflict with the people of God, namely that God feels far away, that God feels distant and unreachable. They haven't seen or heard from God in quite some time. They have not seen or heard from the prophets in quite some time. And the people feel alienated and isolated. So Jesus says, I am the way back home. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus becomes like the technology of God. Or the lens that you would put on to see God clearly. Jesus is the apocalypse, the unveiling the truth of God. It's a big idea, and we're going to unpack it for a little bit together, but there it is. Now, maybe the question would be, why does God need 
an interpretation? Does God not self-interpret or self-disclose? Not to me. I don't know if God's done that to you. There sure is a lot of mystery wrapped up in God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. One of the folks on our our, uh, Thursday Bible study we do each week uh, before the sermon pointed out that this language right here, I am the way, the truth, and the life, another place Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, this language of I am is likely quite charged language that got Jesus in a lot of trouble. Because where else do we hear the language of I am? Who said it? Moses. Right? Yeah. The original kind of primal revealing of who God is to Moses on Mount Sinai is where you get the language of I am. It's the language in Greek of ego and me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the Hebrew language, it's the language of a of a asher I am who I am. Do you remember this story? Jesus is making explicitly, if you were a Jewish listener, a God claim with the language of "I am the way, the truth, and the life." This "I am" language is is picked up from the big tradition. And applied specifically to a human one. And that's a dangerous kind of language. If you remember in that story about I am. There is this crisis of meaning happening in Moses' life. Who is Moses? What's Moses' call and vocation in the world? And all of a sudden this... God character shows up in the story and Moses is rightly confused and says, what are you? Who are you? Tell me something so I can understand. What is the truth of this moment? And the answer that God gives is, of course, the riddle. I am who I am or I'll be who I'm going to be. And it, it both discloses and it, and it conceals at the same time. This God that Moses encounters is the God of relationship, we said. The other way to understand who God is is the next line. I am with you. Ehye is with you. You may not all the way understand who God is, but you need to know that it is a relational kind of understanding if it is anything. It is not a detached kind of God. The language of truth is at its core the language of relationality, of togetherness. Truth is only understood looking across the table, looking someone in the eye. Because the the opposite of truth is the language of deception or lies. And each time the Old Testament talks about lying, it talks about it in a relationship to your neighbor. To not defraud someone else. To not lie or bear false witness against your neighbor. Truth and deception necessitates a relationship. And if we have felt distant from God, then the language of truth is the language of drawing near. Some kind of revelation, revealing or uncovering, that helps us to see and approach way, truth, and life. The path back to God. Now the problem with God is that God is a slippery character. 
We often use the language of light or illumination for God, but that is not always or only or principally the way that the ancient peoples would have encountered God. So even after Moses meets, listens to, has a conversation with this voice that gives this riddle of a name for who God is, a little bit later, like 30 chapters later, Moses has had just all of the stuff happen with God. They've been through the wilderness together. They've been through the plagues together. They've been through not having enough food, not having enough water, through the betrayal of the people with the golden calf. And Moses needs just a little bit more. And so what does Moses ask for? It says, can I see you? I have heard you, but Moses wants to see God. It's in chapter 33 of the book of Exodus. You can turn there if you want to. I'm going to read just a little bit of it for you. Moses says to the Lord, see, you've said to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name and you found favor in my sight. Now, if I found favor in your sight, show me your ways. Let me see it. That I may know you and find favor. And then the Lord says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses asks, show me your glory, I pray. So God says, I'll make all of my goodness pass before you. This is exciting, y'all. We're about to see God show up in the story. The tension builds. I will will make all of my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you the name Adonai, the Lord. And I will be gracious to who I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy to who I'll show mercy, but you cannot see my face. And all of us go, oh, man, we're so close. For no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continues, see, I'm going to place you by me, and you're going to stand in the rock, this cleft of the rock, and my glory will pass before you, but I'm going to cover you. There's the language of concealment. Even in the midst of revelation, there is a hiding Then I'll take my hand away and you shall see my backside, but my face shall not be seen. The language of you shall see my back is you're going to see where I just was. And that's going to have to be good enough. Even in God's revelation, there is this, I'm going to be just saying, it's an annoying amount of mystery. The other way that the scriptures talk about God is clothed in thick darkness. The building of the temple, there is this need to pin God down in a space, in a location. If we can't see God, if we're not always sure if we can hear God, at least we'll know where God is. The temple. But even at the consecration of the temple, the king says, God, we know That you live in thick darkness. The psalmist in Psalm 97 says the same thing. That God is shrouded in thick clouds and darkness. So of course, of course, we still yearn for apocalypse. Because if I'm being honest, and I imagine if you 
were to say out loud too, this is often the reality for God as we experience God. Veiled, opaque, full of mystery. And if we're going to risk encounter, we're going to need some kind of interpretive principle, a lens to see through the darkness. Here's the way the Gospel of John talks about it. The truth is like the Logos or the Word, which is like Christ, who is like God. In the beginning of John's Gospel, In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the Greek understanding of the world, the Word, the Logos, is the disclosing principle for reality, for truth. If you want to know what truth is, you've got to get the Logos in front of your eyes so you can see the world correctly. And so the writer of John's gospel picks up this concept and says, oh, we, we know that story. We've got a way to understand ultimate reality, which we call God. It's in this one Jesus the Christ. And so the Logos language gets applied to the Messiah. And Jesus speaks either like God or like a crazy person. There's not an in-between here, folks. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I don't have anything to say but what God has revealed to me, Jesus is saying. Now what this means, if you even buy this, that the, the truth, the world as it really is, you and me as we really are, is revealed in this person. And now we're getting to kind of the central claim of what we're all here to do, folks. What we call the gospel or the good news. If you even begin to lean into this, then it gives us a sense of what we do next. Later on in the New Testament, it talks about truth as something that is within us. Not something out there, like I found the truth and I'm going to bring it to class and turn it in with my homework and I'm going to get the grade I need to get. But the truth is within you. Like this principle that will guide you. Like this, this lens that interprets. If God is just shadows and deep darkness, then the, the movement of the people on the mountain with Moses is the movement we should all assume as well, which is, no thank you, I'm going to go stand over here Moses, you go stand over there with God and let us know how it goes. Right? That's the language of a God who is revealed in deep shadows and darkness. But if the truth moves inside of us, then we have to move toward it. To move closer. And again, this is a very different way to understand truth than sort of general propositions about the world. That's the sort of you hold it at a distance. What I'm asking you to do is take a step off and trust the thing and come near to it. Embrace it and hold it close. 
The disciples, they do this. They move closer to Jesus. They buy this language. They lean in. They're all fighting about who's going to be closer. Who's going to sit at your right hand? Who's going to sit at your left hand? I am. I am. Can I get first? Shotgun. That's like the whole thing with the disciples. They just want to be close to the action. They want to move closer to Jesus because they think that Jesus is taking them closer to God because that's the story that they're being told. That's the movement I'm asking you to make. Jesus, as his life weaves toward what feels like a climax. Feels like a moment. And the way that the gospel writers say it, it's like night begins to fall. And everything starts to move through shadows. And the plot turns in a way that nobody saw coming. And they take and they arrest Jesus. Partly for this language of I am and I know the Father and I've seen the Father. And if you see, right, that. And also the language of I'm going to tear this temple down and rebuild it in three days. And also the language of you give under Caesar what's Caesar's, but then give unto God what's God's. All of it. Everybody's mad. Everybody is upset with what has been disclosed in the apocalypse of God that we call Jesus. Everybody. And a problem for those early followers of Jesus is where the story goes next. If truth is an unveiling then the story that Jesus' life is telling unveils something that does not compute. It doesn't ring as truth. Right? So you've got the story and the disciples have been going along asking for more and more revelation, more and more access and sight to what the heart of God is like. And Jesus discloses, right? Jesus reveals the truth. And it's a problem. It's a, it's a big problem. This symbol, this moment, does not self-interpret. It does a little bit to us. When you and I see this, we have a story for it. We talk about rescue and deliverance and salvation. But that is us interpreting this through the lens of our story. Is the cross propaganda or is it apocalypse? When Pilate says to them, do what you're going to do with them. In fact, you can have this cross. We'll put it to use. The cross... Well, this is the sign of prop. This is the sign of power. This tells a story if you're wrong, which is you stay in your lane. And if you don't stay in your lane, we will put you back in it. What the cross reveals, what it discloses is that the powers are always stronger and that Jesus turned out to be a liar. They tell him that on the cross. The mockery is one of you have no idea what you're talking about. Everything you have said is a farce. And the way we know it's a farce is because we put you up there. 
It is the propaganda of the powers. This is why Paul says to the world, the cross is what? It's foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is what? It's the power of God. None of it makes sense until Sunday. The disciples had spent all of their time moving close, right? Coming closer and closer to the action until this moment. And then they all leave. They all run and scatter. And that hope of drawing near to God through Christ, it feels like it just sort of shatters. And whatever truth they had been absorbing about what it means to follow this Christ, it just falls through. And no one is left save a few women. Just a few women who can bear the pain of the moment and sit and wait. What the cross reveals, the truth that is only known through a cruciform life, is that the powers have it wrong. That strength, that retributive violence is not the way the world is made whole. Jesus says it's like power is made strong in weakness. And if you would like to live, if you would like to have life, then you're going to have to lose it. The truth that Jesus reveals is that almost everything that we have been seeing, that we feel to be chaos, is in fact the shadow side of life, the false deceptive reality that we call the world or we call propaganda or we call the language of politics and the language of division. Now here's the challenge. What the gospel asks of us is that we move closer. And what Jesus guarantees is that moving closer is moving closer to this story. Which does not move around but through suffering. So if you feel this moment of chaos in your life, whether because you keep turning on the news because you can't help it or because your own story is full of tragedy and God feels far, you're going to have to step closer. To see things as they really are. You will not understand this story from a distance. It will look to you like foolishness. So I'm going to ask, we're going to pray together as we leave this space. And then we're going to sing together about God's love. Because what Jesus reveals is what God is like. And what God is like is chesed. The Hebrew people would say, is steadfast Love is covenantal faithfulness. 
And so when the world feels like water, there is still solid ground. This is always the invitation to move closer to this story, to understand this truth from the inside of it. Close your eyes. Would you open your hearts? God of the mountain, God of the fire, God of deep darkness, and God of illumination. We keep saying all of these names for you, God, partly because we don't know how to speak with precision. We don't always know the way back to you. We are trying, God, to trust this truth. The world is made whole through the most unlikely of stories, the most unlikely of methods. And so as much as we are able right now, God, we surrender our need for assurance and for answers. If we can set those aside, God, because we just would really like to encounter. Now, be gentle with us. Because in truth, you will see us as we truly are. And let's be honest, God, we have not been ourselves in a long time. We've got mask upon mask and layer upon layer. And assume it's fooling you and everyone else. But you know, you see, and you still love us. So we will trust you enough to show up and to move close. Hold us near in the chaos and the noise. Speak in a whisper or speak in a yell. This is our prayer. Amen.